Amen. Across the top there, you'll see the main point in two acts. I mean acts in terms of acts of a play. Uh, we're using the idea of the 12 minor prophets being plays in our mini theater. So we're up to play number five. And you could say that the book of Jonah plays out in two acts, showing, both showing God's mercy and his sovereignty. So act one is when God called a prophet to go to a city to preach God's message, but the prophet rebelled. Already everything seems topsy-turvy because the prophet is rebelling, not the nation rebelling. And sure enough, God pursued the prophet, continued to rebel while pagan sailors repented. And finally, God taught mercy to Jonah through the great fish. Act 2, which is verse, uh, chapters 3 and 4, when God again called the same prophet a second time to go to the same city to preach the same message, the prophet went. God caused the whole city to repent while the prophet continued to rebel, reacting in anger. And finally, God taught mercy to Jonah through a plant and a worm. So we'll get to that um, next week, Lord willing. So here's my, my summary of the book, our fifth minor prophet. Uh, God's theater presentation of Jonah is the most well-known, the most well-liked, I think, I've heard, uh, and unique in other ways. It differs from other prophetic books in that the book of Jonah focuses on the prophet himself rather than on the prophet's message to a nation. God did send Jonah with a message to a nation, but Jonah refused to deliver the message out of personal rebellion against God. As a result, Jonah was literally swallowed by a great big fish, we often say whale, while in the belly of the fish, Jonah repented and the reason for his rebellion was revealed. Jonah had feared that God would forgive the audience, the group of people known as the Ninevites. Later, when Jonah preached to them and they did repent, Jonah resented that. We'll see in chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. In keeping with our God theater pattern of judgment unto self-restoration, God judged and restored both the people of Nineveh and the prophet Jonah himself. Perhaps the biggest issue in the book of Jonah is this. What will God do when the prophet becomes just like the audience? Answer, God will restore his prophet, then restore the target audience in his sovereign grace. So we'll see two themes, uh, the theme of mercy and the theme of sovereignty. Mercy is to Nineveh, of course but also to Jonah, we'll see that quite a bit, and even mercy to the pagan sailors on the boat. Sovereignty, we'll see all over the place. First of all, the storm. Second of all, the fish. Third, the plant, which comes much later, chapter 4. The worm, the wind, the prophet, and the Ninevites. God is over all of it. Then we get to the next section, the man of Jonah. He's a fictional character. Is he? in a story about a whale, or is he a real person in history? That, of course, is the debate. If you've read anything, heard anything about the book of Jonah, you'll see that's the big debate. Usually, conservatives come down on the side of it being literal and that he's a historical person, and liberals come down on the side of saying that it's all a fiction and a story. Get a little concerned when we start saying uh, what's presented in Scripture as history and true is actually just a metaphor. So we um, pretty vehemently come down on the side of seeing Jonah as a real person. It was a real whale, and he really did get swallowed up by this. So the biblical evidence from this is in both Old Testament and New, listed on your handout, I believe. I'm on a different page now. Yeah, 2 Kings 14.25 and Matthew 12.39-41. I want to deal with those briefly, and then we'll just get into the text of, of Jonah. So some will dismiss Jonah as a fictional character, but the Old Testament doesn't see him that way. The Old Testament see his, sees him as a real man in history, a real prophet, a man named Jonah, 2 Kings uh, 14, 25. And Jesus himself referred to Jonah as a real prophet, and that was his whole point, is the reality of Jonah as a prophet who went into the whale and came out of the whale, just like Jesus goes into the tomb and comes out of the tomb. And so when unbelieving scribes in Matthew chapter 12, I'll, I'll cover this passage now uh, for a quick moment, Matthew chapter 12, 39 to 41. In that scene, unbelieving scribes and Pharisees asked Jesus for a sign that would substantiate his claims. And so Jesus replied this, Matthew 12, 39, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, 
but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Verse 40, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Matthew 12, 39-40. So with Jesus himself, uh, the greatest teacher and our trusted Savior, referencing Jonah with his experiences as a historical figure, as an illustration of Jesus' own yet-to-come literal death and literal resurrection bodily, physically, from the dead. By doing this, Jesus certainly reinforces for me, and hopefully I'm persuading you, that Jonah is a real historical figure. The book of Jonah is to be understood and interpreted that way and taken literally. There was actually this great fish that swallowed him and spit him back out. As far as the Second Kings passage, the Old Testament passage, I want to start there and launch us then into the background of Jonah himself, and then we'll pick up with the text of Jonah itself under those four categories on the bottom of your page, the um, outline. So 2 Kings 14, um, we know that Jonah was God's servant already, and he was one of those of what we could call a privileged group of men who stood in the presence of God and felt God's pressured will upon them to deliver God's message in God's way to the audience that God had for them. Before, in our first four minor prophets, it hasn't been a problem. They just go where they're told to go. This is the first time we have a prophet who rebels against God and does not want to deliver God's message in God's way to God's target audience. But formerly, it seems like he did. If you, if you look at the Second Kings 14 um, chapter as a whole, Jonah heard the voice of God telling Jonah what God was going to do among the nations. Uh, Jonah preached his messages. His messages came true, which is, of course, the classic text. Uh, test for prophets. If they're truly prophets of God, then whatever they say and predict does come true. I get that out of, out of Deuteronomy, that whatever they predict has to come true, and therefore they're a true prophet. If it does not come true, then they're a false prophet. It's that simple. Jonah preached, and his predictions came true. His messages came through. His ministry seems to have fruitfulness and success, and people remembered what Jonah preached. So in 2 Kings 14, it was a time in which Jonah lived, and it was a time of crisis. And we can read from 2 Kings 14, 24, that King Jeroboam, quote, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So it's one of those kings, one of those times. It was a bad king. However, God was at work. He was at work in those days. Just before the prophet Jonah, there were verbal prophets, prophets Elijah and Elisha, and during the lifetimes of those two, Elijah and Elisha, God had broken his silence of the previous generations, and God was once again raising up his servants to speak his word with grace and power to the people. So it's in a time of evil, an evil king, evil being done, with rebellion and darkness around, that there were glimmers of light and hope, and the glimmers of light and hope came through Jonah. Isn't that interesting? So Jonah seems to have known in the past a sense of doing God's work. He was God's man, God's servant, God's prophet, and Jonah thought he knew God's will for his life. So when we get to our passage now, Jonah 1 verse 1, we see once again God making it clear to Jonah what God wants Jonah to do this time. God's work was always well-planned, as you know. God's work is always well-rehearsed and interrelated to his other work. And so when we encounter the prophet Jonah now, despite its past privileges, despite his past usefulness, Jonah seems to be a man who now, in our study, in the book of Jonah, slips, stumbles, falls from his previous faithfulness, obedience, and usefulness. And one thing we learn already is that no past obedience can substitute for present-day commands, present-day obedience to the word of God. Great blessings only bring great present fruitfulness with continuing obedience. We can't rely on last year. We can't rely on a decade ago. We can't, as they say, rest on our laurels and say, well, I did it back then, so now I don't have to. So when Jonah walks onto stage, as it were, to our mini theater, he's about to begin his play, his story, his book. Jonah is no longer the man that he once was. Uh, am I living with only memories of obedience in my life in the past? Am I substituting my past spiritual record for present responsibilities today? 
It's one thing to start a walk with God. It's another thing to continue a walk with God. And yet another thing to finish the course of our walking with God. So here we go. On your handout, you'll find the outline at the bottom of, of the first um, page, the front cover, front page there, outline of Jonah, chapter 1, 1 through 16, Jonah ran away, but God would not give up the chase. Chapter 117 to 210, Jonah prayed from the belly of the fish or the depths of the sea. Chapter 3, 1 through 10, Jonah preached in Nineveh and there were, were mass conversions. And chapter 4, 1 through 11, God is more merciful than his prophet. Ready to start our book. So chapter 1, just read verses 1 through 3 and then I'll read select verses as we go ahead. Jonah 1, 1 to 3. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Now here's the part where you go to the back of your handout. And I have a larger one here to hold up. Okay, so here's, here's where he is, right? And Joppa is where the boat is that he gets on. And Nineveh, in the far right uh, of your map, he's got a big arrow. Nineveh's north of there, Okay. The goal for him, his destination, right after he hears God say, go to Nineveh, is over here. <laughs> this is where he's heading, on a very long journey on a ship, Tarshish. So just based on geography, would you say that he's obedient? <laughs> That's the reason I gave you the map, so that you can see Jonah is running from God. It's the very first impression we're supposed to get. I didn't want you to miss it, but it's also here in our passage. But Jonah... You see it? Arise, go to Nineveh. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish. So I'm simply showing you the geographic locations. Tarshish was far west. Nineveh was east and north. It's obvious he's geographically going the opposite direction that God was commanding him to go. An illustration already of his outright rebellion against the direct command of God. Now why? Why did Jonah rebel? Wrong answer number one. You might think, you might want to give credit to Jonah and say it's a very difficult task. He just wasn't up for foreign missions. You know, uh, Nineveh is a very great city. Uh, it took three days to cross. Uh, we told at the very end of the book of Jonah, it's 120,000 persons, or you could read it as 120,000 children who don't know the right hand from their left, and maybe there were even more because of adults beyond those children. But it's a big city, right? That's the point. The capital of the greatest Syrian empire. Nineveh had walls, we're told from historians, that were 100 feet tall. Uh, the walls were so wide that they could have three chariots ride side by side along the top of the road to provide protection to the city. Uh, inside the walls were gardens and even fields for cattle. So if you want to encircle the city and starve them out, you're going to have to wait for years because they have a good, good amount of food. The city is self-sustaining. The city is powerful. The thought of one solo man arriving with this message from God, an unknown God to them, to a city that's wicked and in rebellion and in power, you have to admit is rather a tall order, if not utterly ridiculous, right? What could one man do? Who would listen to him? Why would they listen to him? Jonah seemed to rebel because he feared a hostile reception on the mission field, uh, but the Bible gives no indication that the difficulty of the task was a reason that Jonah rebelled, so that's wrong answer number one. Wrong answer number two, why did Jonah rebel? Danger. You know, the city's wicked. Wouldn't they simply kill him? End of Jonah. <laughs> right? Wasn't it that Jonah was afraid of the dangers? Wouldn't it be understandable if you're trying to throw him a bone, you're trying to show compassion for the poor Jonah, that is it possible that he was just afraid? Uh, but nothing in the story even hints that Jonah was afraid as a motivation to rebel. Wrong answer number two. What's the right answer? Why did Jonah rebel? Jonah explained it to us uh, over in chapter 4, verse 2. If we're going to borrow from our same book a little bit later. Chapter 4, verse 2. Oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. 
For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Where's he quoting from there? God's words to Moses at the burning bush. He's quoting the various characteristics of God listed out there. He's citing God's word back to him saying, look, on the one hand you're telling me to go and preach judgment to them. But I know you. You got judgment unto restoration. And I don't want them restored. That's the reason. Jonah is rebelling and not going to Nineveh. He's fleeing on a boat to Tarshish. Just want to make sure you understand our prophet's motivations right now. The people who lived there in Nineveh were enemies of Jonah's people. And Jonah thought that if he would go to them with this message of judgment, that the people would repent and God would bless them. The real reason Jonah did not want to go is he didn't want God to bless his enemies. You could call it racism. There's an aspect of that for sure. But it's larger than that. It's hatred of people. Hatred of your enemies. God told Jonah to go and preach. It's the same as we're told in the Great Commission. Matthew 28, 18 to 20. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, says Jesus. Therefore, go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. That's the same commission we're given as the church as Jonah was given in the ancient days by God as a solo person. So it's surprising that in Jonah 1, verse 3, he tried to run from God. Shouldn't Jonah have known better than to think he could literally run away from God? I mean, elementary students understand they can't hide from God, right? And he had the Psalms. Had he never read and absorbed Psalm 139, verses 7 to 10, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, which is a place of the dead, you are there. If I, like hiding in a graveyard, for example. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Psalm 139, 7-10. Had, had Jonah never read that part of scripture, which he had? He's running away from God out of hatred to his enemies, and he's not thinking straight. God blocked Jonah from getting to his disobedient destination. Did he ever make it to Tarshish? Let me quiz you. <laughs> no, he was, he was never going to make it to Tarshish. We've got quite a storm in the way. And quite a God behind the storm. It's interesting that Jonah paid the ticket. He paid the ticket to get to the destination. We don't believe he ever got a refund. I mean, he never did get to the destination. So just a little note to yourself. If you ever decide to run from God, you're going to end up paying the price, but not getting where you're going. But a little note to yourself on the positive side, if you obey God, you always get where you're going, and God pays your ticket. (laughs) So just a little thought there. Verse 3, but Jonah. Now look at verse 4, but the Lord. Okay, so God commands him, and but Jonah flees. But the Lord, how will God respond when Jonah is fleeing? So no, no path of disobedience is ever blessed by the Lord God, of course. He's going to intervene in special ways to ensure the accomplishment of his purposes. So Jonah had sinned. It's a sin to direct disobey God. He was told to go to this city and preach this message. At first, God allowed him to go. I mean, Jonah didn't break his leg while he was walking down to the dock to find a ship. Right? He let him go a little bit. He got down to the dock. He searched for a ship going to the proper destination. Oh, no, not that ship. That's going to go closer. I want farther. <laughs> You're going farther? Who's going farther? Yes, I'll take the farthest ship. Thank you. He found, and he was, he was managing just fine. And he got on the ship. He paid the fare. He introduces himself somewhat to the sailors. God allowed him on the ship. He set sail. He's on his way away. He's running away. God let him run away. He allowed Jonah to rise up to flee the presence of the Lord, as we're told from verse 3. The only problem is he can never actually flee from God's presence. So God would begin to block his way, first gently, and then not gently. And he will send special messages to get his attention. And in Jonah's case, it started with a storm. You know, just a storm. I mean, storms always come up on the sea, right? Verse 4, But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, 
so that the ship threatened to break up. Now, that's beyond just a normal storm. When you say the Lord hurled, right, this is language that's supposed to get our attention because this is theater. It's dramatic on purpose, but it's also historical. God hurled something at this sea. So our disobedience puts us in danger, but it also puts others in danger, sometimes even innocent bystanders. Because the prophet Jonah disobeyed, the sailors on this boat were now in a storm that they had never seen before. They were experienced sailors, but not like this. Not the Lord God, in anger against his prophet, hurling a storm, a great tempest against them? No. Uh, The sailors on this boat are on the verge of drowning and dying because of Jonah's disobedience. So they were courageous men, ordinarily, and on other storms on other days. They had been out on sea before, but they thought they knew what to do. So verse 5, Then the mariners, which is the, the sailors, were afraid. And each cried to his God, cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone on to the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So when the sailors had done all that they could, they were no better off. And they began to be afraid. They had done everything they could, lightening the ship by throwing the cargo, hurling, by the way, the same verb, hurling the cargo overboard. And now they're down to trying to live through this ordeal. <laughs> they're not delivering cargo anywhere anymore. They've lost the, the merchant, merchandise, right? But these are not normal circumstances. God was in this storm. They prayed to whatever gods they knew, each and every one of them. Whatever god you believe in, whatever you were told as a kid, talk to them because we're about to die. We're up, we're up against that moment, okay? It's not the fault of the sailors, Right? It's the fault of someone else, the man of God who was in their ship not helping to dump the cargo because at that point he's still asleep. It's because this man asleep down below deck that they were at risk. Their knowledge and experience could do more, no more for them. Their religion, their beliefs could do no more for them. They're stuck. They're, they're going to die. So verse 6, So the captain came and said to Jonah, wakes him up, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise. Call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give us a a thought to us that we may not perish. The captain had done everything he could. He wanted literally all hands on deck. We use that phrase, but maybe it comes from the book of Jonah. So that everyone could do everything that everyone could. Why? Because the captain and the crew have concluded something. They've concluded this storm is not like any other storm. The storms that they had seen were natural, This storm was supernatural. When you're in a supernatural storm, you get it. You understand that this is a supernatural storm. So they actually concluded that there was a God, a God, whichever God it is, they don't quite know, but there's a God up there who's angry with someone on this ship. They concluded that. You know how There's general revelation, special revelation. General revelation is we learn things about God from the created order, the fact that he's faithful because the sun comes up every day. Then there's special revelation, which is the Bible. We know things about God because he revealed it to us. This they gleaned from general revelation. This storm is telling me something. This storm is telling me that God is angry and that God is angry with somebody on this ship. And they were correct. Right? There's an amazingly astute observation that itself shames Jonah the prophet. Jonah the prophet is supposed to receive direct revelations from God, and he's not getting it. But these sailors, who have no knowledge of the living God, are understanding what's happening accurately. They thought that God was angry at one person on the ship, and there was no getting away until they dealt with that. Jonah thought he could run away from God. It's pretty different conclusions, don't you think? And the sailors thought one person on board had done something horrible, but that one person was not fessing up. So Jonah was not revealing to his fellow shipmates his runaway status, what to do. So the captain and the sailors decided that they would use lots, controlled by the supernatural, to discover the culprit on board. But casting of lots, flipping of coins, rolling of die is all under the control of the Lord our God. Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. 
In those days, they had, uh, maybe you've seen Middle Eastern clothing, right? They had a, a, basically a skirt. When you kneel down or crouch down like this with a skirt and put the cloth across, you have a flat place. And that's what they mean, rolling, the, cast the lots into the lap. So that's how they would decide. The uh, captain would probably be the one to cast the lots. And whatever method they used, it pointed to Jonah. Chapter 1, verse 7. They said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. They figured it out. The pagan sailors figured it out. God wanted the sailors to know the truth. His storm is not aimed at them. His supernatural storm is aimed at Jonah. So God used their casting of the lots because he controls it. He's sovereign, remember, over everything to send the true message to the pagan sailors. And as soon as the sailors understood this truth, they put a fury of questions to the prophet. Look at verse 8. They said to Jonah, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where you come from? What is your country? And what people are you? Sailors didn't really know Jonah at all. But now their lives were in danger because of him. And they deserved an explanation. They demanded an explanation. They deserved the truth. And notice this moment. Just freeze frame and think about what's happening in this moment. Jonah had run away from God and was in this situation because he would not give God's truth to pagans. But here Jonah was, in spite of his attempts to get away from that role, now forced to do precisely that, to give God's truth to pagans. Isn't it possible that already here there were men from Nineveh on that boat? Isn't it possible that some who grew up in Nineveh would call themselves Ninevites were in the mini audience of sailors on the boat? It's at least possible. But even if not, what do we learn from this moment? That God accomplishes his purposes. That even if that person is obstinately disobedient and willfully rebellious, God can still accomplish his purposes despite and through that person. What did Jonah say? Jonah said truth that the sailors needed to hear about God in verse 9. Jonah said to them, I am a Hebrew. And I fear or worship, right? I'm a, I'm a follower of, my religion is. He's, he's not saying that he fears God, because obviously at this moment he's quite rebellious against God, but he's declaring truthfully that which God he belongs to. That's basically what he's saying. I fear or worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Interesting how he comments that it's the God who made the sea. <laughs> it's the God who made the dry land, right? The sailors for the first time right here are being introduced to the God who made the sea, the sea on which they've made their living for all these years and the God who's responsible for their frightful situation, the supernatural storm. And Jonah's introducing the sailors to the God who had made the dry land. Oh, is that music for sore ears? I would love to be on dry land right now. And God gave Jonah a most eager audience. What a response the sailors had in verse 10. Then the men were exceedingly afraid. Now what does that mean? Back in verse 5, they were already afraid of the storm. But here... They're now exceedingly afraid of God. The sailors had gone from port to port through their life experience, and they had previously heard about the God of the Hebrews, that this God was the God who brought down ten plagues on Egypt until they let his people go. Um, They did not realize until this moment that they were now on board with a Hebrew, one of that God's persons, and this supernatural storm was being brought by the God of the Hebrews. And this was the God who had parted the Red Sea so that the Hebrews could go through on dry land and the moment all of his people were through, then God let the sea go and it destroyed the entire Egyptian army. That's the God they're now dealing with. And this was the God who led his people through the wilderness for 40 years. Not only the God over the sea, but the God over the dry land, even very dry land, like the desert, the wilderness. For 40 years he was able to keep his people alive out there without their sandals wearing out, providing bread daily for them to eat from heaven, I guess. This was the God who protected his people with a shade cloud by day, a pillar of fire to keep them warm and guide them by night. This was the God who leveled the walls of Jericho. Surely they heard these stories. This was the God who caused the sun to stand still at Gibeon so that Joshua would have time to achieve a full victory over the fleeing enemy. This God of the Hebrews was a great God whom these sailors had never encountered before until now. It was not some weak, false, local deity that was pursuing Jonah. It was the God of the Hebrews, the God of the heavens and the earth and the sea. And the sailors were terrified. 
That's what that means in, in verse 9. And next in verse 10, the sailors said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because Jonah had told them. This is the moment that Jonah should have repented. Now, a freeze frame again. Like, what's happening here? Jonah should have repented. It was God saying truth to Jonah from pagan sailors. Reversal, right? The whole story is up on its head. The sailors are saying truth to Jonah instead of Jonah saying truth to the sailors. What is this that you have done? Should have been a challenge question directly from God. Jonah, what is this that you have done? And if Jonah had answered that question properly from his conscience, he would have fallen down on his knees right there and prayed to the God of the storm. Jonah would have repented. The storm would have been stilled. The sailors would have repented next of their own sins and believed in the one true living God whom they had just experienced and the prophet could tell them further about. I'm the one who sinned, but God saved me. You are people who sin. God can save you. All of that could have happened right in this moment, but that didn't happen in this moment. Instead, the question of the sailors hung in the air unanswered. Why didn't you obey your God? What is this you have done? Silence from Jonah, the fleeing prophet. Or put it another way, can you give good reasons why you turned from your own God so that we all ended up in danger on this boat with you? You mind sharing, dude? <laughs> right? As the sailors are saying to him. Jonah should have been convicted. But Jonah hardened his own heart while the sailors seemed to be primed and ready to soften their hearts and to yield to the Lord God. So in the absence of Jonah turning, the storm continued. And since Jonah had made his decision not to repent right then and there, life has to go on, right? So verse 11, Then the sailors said to Jonah, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. Now, Consider Jonah's options here. Freeze frame one more time. He could call on the sailors to repent of their sins and trust in the mighty God. Isn't that a golden opportunity for an evangelist? Right? Evangelists pray of and dream about moments like this. What shall we do to you? <laughs> number two, option number two, he could bluff it. Hey, give me an oar. I'll help you row. Come on, let's get through this together. But Jonah knew they're all going to die. He knew that. Option number three, tell the truth. Okay, guys, I'm going to level with you. God wants me to preach to Nineveh. Turn the boat around towards Nineveh. The storm will stop. That's option number three. Option number four is what Jonah actually did. It is so bad. Jonah was so determined to resist the Lord's will that he actually said this to the sailors. Throw me overboard. And what Jonah is saying is, I'd rather die than do God's will. That's what he's saying. Listen to verse 12. Jonah said to them, pick me up and hurl me, the same verb again, hurl, hurl me into the sea, then the sea will, be, will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Can a believer in the true God be so hardened by sin that he prefers death to turning and doing what God insists for him to do? Yes, that's what we're learning from this book. It's what the pathway of sin does to our hearts. Be careful. Think of Jonah's heart towards the people of Nineveh. Apparently, Jonah was quite willing that all the people of Nineveh would die in their sins. doesn't mind. A whole city dies in their sins. It's all right. In contrast, look at the heart of the sailors toward Jonah. The sailors, again, probably some from Nineveh, were unwilling that just one man would die even though it was that one man who had brought all them into danger. How do we know that? Well, Jonah had told them to throw him overboard. So they would be in the clear to throw him overboard and be done with him and done with the storm, right? Move on with their lives. What in the world was all that about? But they were not willing to have Jonah drown and die. They had compassion for him. He did not have compassion for them. He didn't have compassion for the whole city of Nineveh. If it could be prevented, they were going to prevent Jonah's death. They're going to prevent throwing him overboard. Maybe it's also out of fear because this is the... Hebrew prophet of the Hebrew God, the God of the Hebrews, and we don't want to be in trouble with him. So they're willing to do their best to save Jonah. Verse 13, Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against God. So God exposed the heart of Jonah in rebellion. God exposed the heart of the sailors trying to save Jonah, and the Hebrew says that they dug in their whole oars. I mean, they, they were rowing as 
hard as they possibly could. They gave every effort to rescue Jonah while Jonah would not preach one word to save those people on board or to save those people in Jonah, in, in Nineveh. The sailors were fighting with God because it's God's supernatural storm. Of course they can't win. So we get to verse 14. Verse 14 is very moving to me. When the sailors were ready to admit that they could not row to land and that the sea was growing more and more tempestuous against them, they did something that is surprising to me. I love God for this. Verse 14. Therefore the sailors called out to... The covenant name of God is given here. The Lord. And then we have a quotation. And the covenant name of God is repeated. O Lord. They use the covenant name of the God of the Hebrews. They use the covenant name of the God of the seas. The God of the land. The God of themselves. He is the only living and true God. They cry out to the living God. For what? For salvation of their lives? Physically? But is it more? Listen to how it goes. Verse 14. O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, again, third time, covenant name used, you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. What a prayer. They, they spoke to the true God. Maybe for the first time, definitely for the first time in their lives, they called to God using his covenant name revealed through this prophet, God's prophet. They spoke in humility. They simply asked God to save them from the storm. It seems that in their pleading for their own lives, they were even asking to be saved from more than the storm. They were asking to be saved from God's judgment against them regarding the life of this unknown prophet. If they're about to hurl him overboard and they know they're going to face this God someday, they're asking to be saved from more than the storm, right? They're asking to be saved from the hand of God, whatever comes next, right? They had no choice. It would be nice if Jonah were, since it's his bright idea to go overboard, just jump yourself overboard and save these poor fellows this conscience problem, <laughs> right? But in God's providence, he's so stubborn he won't do it. He puts them in this position, and so they have a conscience problem which drives them to the living God in prayer. Isn't that wonderful? These, these sailors were put in the position of incurring guilt with God by throwing God's prophet overboard, Jonah wouldn't jump. So verse 15, they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea. Think of the scene. Praying pagans, hurling a rebellious prophet of God into God's supernatural sea storm. What a scene, right? This is full-on drama in God's mini theater, and it's ironic. What does it tell us about God? Second half of verse 15 tells us something significant about the Lord our God, and the sea ceased from its raging. What must be the sailor's experience then to look out across the water and they see it completely still? Instantly, I assume. To watch the supernatural storm that they thought was going to take them turn into the storm ceasing its raging on the gently rolling deck, marveling at calm water. What are they supposed to do then? We just dump the prophet over. They're looking for him. Don't see him. Verse 16 is the highlight of this chapter. Then the sailors feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. It's clear these men were converted. Converted to faith in the Lord God, Lord God of Israel, the Lord God of heaven, who made the sea, this is the third time we're told the sailors feared. Verse 5, they're afraid at the storm of the Lord. Verse 10, they were afraid of the Lord of the storm. And verse 16, when they saw the sea cease from its raging, they feared the Lord exceedingly. And for you to be convinced that these men were converted, what more do you want than the difference between verse 5, each cried out to his God, compared to the phrase in verse 14, they cried out to the Lord. They had heard God's truth from God's prophet, verse 9. They prayed to the Lord God in verse 14. They saw God's power in the storm in verse 11. And in the calm, verse 15, they were progressing and growing in their fear of the Lord to the level in verse 16 that the men feared the Lord exceedingly. If there's still doubt left in you about their conversion, consider this was not a conversion during distress. It was not a foxhole conversion. The danger had passed. The storm had ceased its raging. 
Furthermore, the evangelist was gone. He's not pressuring them to make a decision, come down front, kneel, pray the sinner's prayer. There's none of that. He's gone. There's no personal pressure from Jonah the prophet. He's overboard. Consider these relieved sailors now left on a quiet sea in a boat that had been relieved of much of its cargo, and yet they found a way to offer a sacrifice to the Lord in worship because that's how the Hebrew God expected to be approached in worship. Jonah's gone. The sailors still made Jonah's God their own God. Verse 16 went on to tell us the sailors made vows to the Lord God. They made their vows after they were safe from the storm. Consider the irony here. Jonah was running because he did not want God to save the heathen of Nineveh. But the first event in our story in the book of Jonah is God saving heathen sailors who had just like maybe even some of the pagans of Nineveh, and Jonah had been used by God to bring it about, but Jonah wasn't even there to see their conversions. God was already accomplishing God's saving purposes. Meanwhile, Jonah himself had not yet repented. Even a rebellious and stubborn prophet cannot stop God from fulfilling his sovereign purposes for salvation of souls. What God will do, God will do. And no one will try to pry those souls out of God's hand Jesus said in John 10, 28, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand, John 10, 28. So Jonah missed all the blessings on the ship. Uh, God did his work despite Jonah's disobedience, and God could do his work with Jonah's obedience. Then Jonah would share in the blessings. Either way, God blesses those whom God will bless, and we can work with God in blessedness, we can work against God in misery, So now we turn from the sailors to find out what happened to Jonah. Our second section of our study, chapter 117 up to 210, where Jonah prayed from the belly of the fish or the depths of the sea. Verse 17, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So there he's in the water, and next he's in the great fish. He's in the water in the great fish. So Jonah got a taste of what uh, the misery of death and the misery of hell are like. Right? Isn't that the picture of being under, in the Old Testament mindset, the sea was this chaotic enemy against God, and then to be inside the sea, and then inside this great fish, is a picture of death and judgment of God. And Jonah even spoke this way in verse 2, out of the belly of Sheol, again, Sheol was a place of the dead, I cried. Out of the belly of death, I cried. But on the other hand, this same fish was the means that God used to deliver Jonah from the depths of the sea, isn't it? This time inside the fish is what it took for the runaway prophet Jonah to repent. So chapter 2, verse 1. Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord, there he's using his covenant name, out of my distress, and he answered me. But the best miracle of God is not what's happening inside the fish. The best miracle of God is what's happening inside of Jonah. It's not that Jonah was swallowed by a whale in order to save him, but rather that God turned Jonah from rebellion to humble prayer. And Jonah was rescued from his spiritual depths before he was rescued from the belly of the whale. Let's look at this prayer. First you see in verse 3, honesty. Jonah faced and acknowledged his trouble. He didn't blame the sailors. I can't believe those guys threw me overboard. I was joking, you know, or whatever. He didn't blame anyone else. Verse 3, he had clear thinking when he said to God, you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and billows passed over me. A quick note for you. Uh, Psalm 42, verse 7, sounds just like this. I'll read it. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. It's the statement of somebody who's deep under the water. And I'm looking up and seeing the waves. (laughs) All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. Sounds just like here, verse 3, all your waves and billows have passed over me. But the refrain of Psalm 42 is this. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. So even if Jonah's not quoting that psalm, which he probably is, uh, what is certain is that Jonah was honestly turning to God in prayer and repentance. Verse 4, we see godly sorrow. I'm driven away, he says. Verse 5, the water's closed in over me to take my life. Weeds wrapped around my head, so we get like this um, 
dramatic picture within our theaters makes good theater, right? The, the seaweed is wrapped around the fellow. You probably have even seen sketches and drawings of poor Jonah under the water with seaweed wrapped around him. This is his poetry. This is his prayer. Verse 7, those who, who pay regard to vain idols forsake the hope of steadfast love. So another translation of verse 8 is this, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. He forfeited being on the deck of the ship while those sailors repented. He didn't get to see that. So he forfeited the grace that could be his because he's chasing something other than God. An idol is anything that takes the place of God. So Jonah felt true and good sorrow for having put something else in place of God. He had turned away from God. He had declined God's mercy. He, he didn't ask God for anything. He was not even asking to survive and to make it out of the belly of the fish. Notice that he doesn't pray for that. Get me out of here. Uh, Jonah was genuinely sorry for his disobedience, and he expressed that sorrow. Then we also see thankfulness. What could a man in the belly of the fish be thankful about? <laughs> well, if all we look at is his physical circumstances, we could say nothing. There's really not a lot to be thankful for. But if we ask about his spiritual life, what could he be thankful for? Thankful for everything. He had no legitimate hope to survive this ordeal physically. He considered himself dead in a matter of minutes or hours, and that's likely or reasonable and deserved. But Jonah found grace in God again, verse 6. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. Not from the, not from the whale, but from the spiritual pit of his rebellion, right? Verse 7, my prayer came to you. Verse 8, Jonah had the confident hope of God's steadfast love. Verse 9, but I with the voice of thanksgiving. There it is, thanksgiving, thankfulness. Jonah said he would pay to God what is fitting response for the spiritual life God had granted to Jonah. End of verse 9, Jonah's word is salvation, and it is spiritual salvation from the fatal path of disobedience. And Jonah was not giving voice of thanksgiving for physically being delivered from the fish. How do we know that? Because he's still inside the fish. <laughs> right? That's pretty obvious. Jonah wasn't giving the voice of thanksgiving to soon be delivered out of this fish because he had no idea or hope that God would do that. Why would he be confident that would happen? What Jonah was thankful for was a very specific and narrow thing, confined only to this, that the spiritual blessing that God gave him was to turn Jonah's heart from rebellion to again calling on the name of the Lord. Uh, Jonah's thankful for the salvation of his soul, for the grace of God of, of forgiveness and putting his heart right, from misery and distress or running away from God to being thankful to God for his act of mercy to change Jonah's heart. And then we also see humility, uh, verse 9. Instead of being prideful for being a Hebrew, as he was back in chapter 1, verse 9, now Jonah's humble and he sees his need as the same as any of the pagans on the ship or any of the pagans in Nineveh. Compare chapter 2, verse 9. I will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. So he recognizes he needs the sacrifice of another to cover his wrongs. With chapter 1, verse 16, when the sailors offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. So he's making a sacrifice, which is the only way for sinners to reach the holy God, just like the sailors made a sacrifice, which is the only way for sinners to reach a holy God. You see the comparison there is in front of us for him to come to God in humility. The sailors had learned their approach to the holy God is through the blood of another, an innocent one, a sacrifice for their sins, through a personal commitment expressed in that vow. And here Jonah, the prophet of the Lord, also approached the same holy God by the blood of another, the sacrifice of another, uh, for his sins through the personal commitment expressed in, in a vow. So obviously there in the belly of the fish, Jonah could not provide a sacrifice, but he vowed what he would do is what is required. The point is that Jonah was not coming to God as a Hebrew prophet who deserved special privileges or concessions from God, but he's just coming as another sinful human being with no excuse. And just like all the other sinful human beings, Jonah needed God's grace, and he's no longer able to pridefully look down on others. He moved from pride to humility, as we we're told by Paul and by our Lord in Ephesians 2.8, by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Hebrews 2, or sorry, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. So the last line there in Jonah 2, 10, salvation belongs to the Lord. What, what a comfort to Jonah 
right, as he ends his prayer, salvation belongs to the Lord. He seems to get it there. Um, Jonah could have died in the fish. He could have died spiritually. But it's even more comfort to us as New Testament Christians looking at this through the lens of Christ's cross and resurrection, right? Because it's what the name Jesus means. When the angel explained the meaning of the name Jesus to Joseph in Matthew 1, he said, you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins, Matthew 1, 21. Isn't that exactly what Jonah's saying from the fish? Salvation belongs to the Lord. So what a comfort to him, what a comfort to us that our God gives salvation. And, and look what God did in chapter 2, 10. The Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah up out of the dry land. So there's physical salvation from the death of the fish, right? There's physical salvation, which is an outgrowth of the spiritual salvation that he gave through his covenant love to Jonah. Jonah went down. And chapter 117 tells us Jonah, Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days, three nights. And because of his sin, he went down. Because of God's grace, he went back up. The pathway of Jesus can be charted as the same story arc, down and back up, right? Down to death and burial, not in the belly of a fish, but in the belly of the earth. Uh, stone covering his, his tomb, and then back out through his resurrection on the third day. So he's in the belly of the fish three days, three nights. Jesus is risen on the third day, and Jesus himself taught us that, as we read earlier, Matthew 12, 39 to 41. The difference is, Jonah went down for his own sins and back up out of mercy. Jesus went down not for his own sins, but for the sins of you and me, bearing the sins of others. And he was raised to life by his own righteousness to bring many sons to glory with him. So again, Matthew 12, 39, Jesus said, no sign will be given to an adulterous and evil generation except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days, three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So the book belongs together, but we're out of time. So next time, we'll pick up with chapter 3, verse 1. We'll cover how Jonah preached in Nineveh. There was mass uh, conversions. And then we'll cover the uh, fascinating fourth chapter where God is more merciful than his prophet, uh, raising up the little plant and then the little worm. You're welcome to read ahead and find how the story goes. We'll just cover it uh, next time. So let's pray. Our Father and our God, we're thankful for your mercy to us. Uh, we find